Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Theology in the Dirt. And by the way, that song's getting old to me. I was trying to download a new song today. And so for all of you dirters, people listening to the Theology in the Dirt, uh, hopefully have some new songs downloaded for you. Something a little different, something tastes a little different, a little Andy Minio and Lecrae. Mm. That'll be fun. Um, so anyway, uh, welcome to Theology in the Dirt. We're glad you guys are listening, and uh, we're glad to be recording this morning. Today we have a guest with us. His name is Emmett Long. Good morning, Emmett. Good morning. Glad to be here. Glad you're here, man. And uh, I'm Mitchell Jolly, and you are? Keith Thompson. Justin Owens. Uh, we're Theology in the Dirt, and we're glad to uh, be talking with you today. So today our topic's going to be the Bible, God's Word. And so we're going to jump into that a little bit because there are all kinds of authoritative words around the world. People speak words, they're holy texts, they're unholy texts. But before we do that, the most important thing for me is our sports hot take. And so uh, because sports are godly, and uh, Paul talked about boxing and running races, so I'm going to trust that God's got good purpose in sports. Amen. Amen. So Emmett, as our guest, you get to lead us off and give us your sports all hot right. take. My hot take is that this year, the NCAA is about to kick off their, their tournament. There will be more upsets this year than in the history of the tournament. And some of those will be fueled by COVID upsets and COVID uh, forfeits. All right. So uh, we've already seen the, the coach for UConn's women's team is out for the first two rounds. Um, we may be seeing some teams that have to forfeit, but I think we'll see some upsets that you would not normally see in a very – Low number of high seeds in the final four. Wow! So don't like don't it. complete a don't complete a bracket. Is that what you're trying to say? No, do it. Fill it out, <laughs> but make it crazy. Just don't put any money on yeah. that bracket. Yeah. Maybe right. Awesome. Go. I like it, Justin. You can get your uh, want 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 ready. <laughs> oh, is this a Tennessee? You always, you always want 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 me when oh, I do a Tennessee on, take. On, this is at least it. Tennessee basketball, so it's okay. I think both Tennessee teams they made the tournament. Yep, there we go. They made the tournament. I think both Tennessee teams will make the Sweet 16, but they'll both fall out there. Hey, man. Hey. 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 It, At least you're a, a fan. Take. I'm a fan. You're a real fan. The boys' team has more potential than they're showing. Um, they made it to the finals or the semifinals of the SEC tournament. Right. Lost by five. Is so. Bruce Pearl, is he still – Bruce Pearl, the coach at Tennessee. He was at Auburn. Didn't, didn't he? Wasn't he at Tennessee? I'm not sure. That's not who. Uh, Barnes. Okay. The guy who's there now. All right. He's really turned them around. So nice. They used to be terrible. Now they're at least in the tournament. There you go. They're dancing. All right. Pearl was there and had NCAA violations. And then he left. We have a good history of NCAA <laughs> violations. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Bruce Pearl. Hey, you know what? If if you can slide somebody some cash in a McDonald's bag like Jeremy Pruitt did, you know those kids need a little money. Yeah. They need some eating money. I'm not against that. Keith, what you got? So mine, I guess, will be local. So um, in light of Barry College football's uh, conference win, I, my sport take is that those guys will they'll repeat that in the same season. So 2020 or 2021 in the fall, they'll do it again in a more standard fashion. Right, but I think Barry Barry wins the conference again twice in one year. That's wild. That's that's um that that's amazing to think about two titles. Yeah, in one year. And I am making an assumption that they will play a regular schedule in the fall. Right, which I think they will. Yeah, but, it looks yeah. like everything is getting back online mm-hmm. for for normal in the fall. All right, here's my sports hot take. This is going to be blasphemous to pure sports fans, um, with the exception of one or two. Sport, well, I would say one sport. I think college athletics uh, are not great. And particularly, <laughs> the NCAA tournament bores me to death. I think it's subpar basketball. Uh-huh. And, and, and here's what, because I love college football. You know, I love college football. Um, but even college football, just because I like the game of football, is often subpar. People who love college sports talk about how the pros, they get paid and they don't really hustle. That's just not true. Sometimes it looks like I think professional athletes are slower because everybody's moving so fast and at the same speed. But it's evident when you get a person on the court or on the field who's not up to speed how quickly they don't stay in the game. Mm. There are few jobs, and these guys have to compete. And uh, I think professional sports far outweighs entertainment value-wise for me. Um, It's bigger 
are more entertaining. And and every year when they talk about March madness, I think March boringness. And I know that's blasphemous to college sports people. So you're just trying to get response to this podcast. You're, <laughs> you're, you're trying to say something that's going to produce outrage. <laughs> yeah, outrage. Yeah. Like last week, I figured we would at least get a few nasty emails. <laughs> I got mostly encouragement from people. <laughs> Somebody's probably going to threaten to kill us this week. It's like, uh, they just down college sports, kill them. I mean, the best part of the March Madness tournament is the upsets, right? You see the Cinderella right. story, who makes right. it further than anybody ever thought they could. That's yeah. entertaining to me. I appreciate that. And it's one game. Anything can happen in one right. game. Yeah. That part is entertaining. I love the, oh, my gosh, nobody expected Loyola of Chicago, which I think they do. They're pretty good, right? Are they? Yeah. I, there's a – is it Eastern Washington? There's a there's a Washington team that's sort of trying to be the new Gonzaga kind of thing. Oh, nice. I don't I don't know what will happen with those guys, but – Right. Yeah, right. It, it is interesting to watch those small schools jump in there and – yeah, compete. It is absolutely. I like watching those big six seven to six eleven NBA athletes just go ham on each yeah. other. That's pretty entertaining to me. So sports hot take over. But watch me get get absolutely shamed. This is the best <laughs> tournament ever in the history of NCAA athletics, and and everybody's like, "You're an idiot." Like, well, probably I'm the most response to this podcast now is going to be mm-hmm. your terrible take. That terrible hot take. I should probably have given myself a. Some manner of laugh track, like yeah. We need to write these things down so that we can revisit them in twelve months and go, okay, yeah, that was crazy. That yeah. was that was nuts. Yeah. Not even close. Or man, nobody nobody would have known that was gonna happen. Right. You should stick to You're theology. a prophet. <laughs> a, a prophet's known by his words, right? We need to reevaluate ourselves. False prophet. All right. Our topic today. Every every few weeks, we're gonna we're gonna come and visit uh, a particular point of Christian teaching. Uh, we talk about some things that are controversial along the way, and we're gonna continue to do that because people do discuss those things, and it's important for us to dialogue about them. Uh, like last week, we talked about Bethany Christian Services and LGBT issues in regard to that, and and uh, and that was very helpful. But we're gonna intersperse through some of our other topics and how we wrestle in our world with theological challenges. We're going to uh, talk about Christian doctrine. This is Theology in the Dirt. We've been clear we're Christians, and we want to live out our faith in our homes, in the public square of our city, and in the world. And so what we want to do today is begin wrestling through some basic Christian doctrine, and we're just going to attack one at a time. And today it's the doctrine of Scripture, what we might say is God's Word. And so we all have various thoughts um, from the scriptures, and so Emmett, you're our guest today, and so we're going to ask you to lead off and give us some thoughts as it relates to God's Word. Yeah, well, I think one of the great things about God's Word is that God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. Um, you know, He could have, He could not have, um, He could have given us very, very limited revelation, but He has given us um, general revelation in nature, and He's given us specific revelation in his word and in the person of Jesus. And uh, so it, it bears for us to, to pay attention to that. Um, what is it that he needs, to, he, he is seeking to say to us? What is it that we need to hear from his word? And, and what do we need to do with that? Um, and I think a lot of times we come to the Bible with preconceived ideas about, I'm looking for an answer for this issue or for this problem or, or this whatever, and it may be that that's even not God's intention for what his, the purpose of his word is for us. His, the purpose of his word is to, to reveal himself to us, to reveal our own need for him to us, and, and to reveal um, really what redemptive history for us personally and for everyone looks like. That's good. If somebody comes to you and says, what is general revelation? That's a word that may stand out to somebody. What is general revelation, and what exactly does that mean? You're asking me? Sure, anybody. Sure. So yeah, whatever. Uh, I think it's it's you get up in the morning and you see the sunrise. It's you see, you look at the stars at night and you see the grandeur of, of creation and you see that there's obviously something bigger than me. Um, it's, it's that thing within all of us that we recognize that we don't control everything, we can't control everything, and there has to be something bigger and greater than us. And that's why everybody around the world in some sense – whether they're Christians or not, they cry out to someone or to something bigger than themselves, recognizing that I am not 
the ultimate. There is something bigger than me. And that's part of what general revelation puts before us is that there is a God who has created. It doesn't tell us everything about God, but it tells us a little bit about his nature and who he is and that he is mighty and powerful. You reveal something that, mm-hmm. that it's not just there. There is something behind that and the human soul can in some degree see that. Right. There's order that. there. There's yeah. um, there's design there. Right. That's good. Justin, what are what are some of your thoughts? Because there's so much here. I think Keith said earlier, we were texting among us like, how many hours we have mm. for this? Four, right? There's so much nuance here to dig into. So we'll come back to some other thoughts. Yeah, where do you I mean, where do you want me to pick up? I mean, you, there's you roll, man. Throw it out. One thought that comes to mind is okay, let's say um, there are things that are true to be discovered in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Because God made it. Um, we as creatures, the Bible tells us, uh, humans are made in his image. There's some degree uh, to which all of created order reflects something of who he is. Um, so can, can I see enough in that to know God as I need to know him? So no, I, that's a great question and a great follow-up on general rev- revelation. I don't think that there's enough in general revelation for us to come to a saving faith. We have to hear from the Lord and hear the word of the Lord, and we need some more specific revelation. Uh, there was a lot of arguments. Um, we're reading through a book, The Contours of the Kuiperian Tradition, right now, and in their chapter on missions, unpacking the thoughts of Abraham Kuiper and J.H. Bavink. I'm probably mispronouncing all those names. Pretty good for but German they, theologians. German theologians in the Netherlands arguing about general revelation and its application to mission. And their conclusion is, is that there's not enough in general revelation for us to come to a saving faith. Right. That we need more specific special revelation. Because as Emmett said, most cultures around the world have some type of belief in God or gods. Most of it's gods that they associate with creation in some manner. And so we, in our brokenness, take the goodness of God that we see in creation and we create idols out of it mm-hmm. rather than recognizing the one true God. So even though it points us to there is something bigger and better, we need the more specific revelation that we find in the Bible, in God's Word, that reveals to us Jesus mm-hmm. and God's plan for us and salvation in that. Right. And as Christians, we don't want to hide the reality that we believe the Bible actually says that. You know, we go to Romans chapter 1 that would tell us creation puts on display the majesty of God and, and humans who the Bible says has an innate problem because of sin turn that into the worship of things rather than the God who made them. So, so yes, they see, but their sight is limited to do anything effective with it redemptively. And so there is, there is something in created order. And, and, and I think um, Paul's language is, is fairly difficult in that it's enough to hold you accountable but not enough to actually do what's necessary for you to be for me to be rescued from this state that's keeping me from seeing yeah Mm. i think in some ways general revelation functions as we've been teaching through galatians it functions like the law and that it shows us there's a god there's something external to us the law shows us that there's a law and there's we have a sin issue, but it doesn't save us. It can't save us. And general revelation can't save us either. Mm-hmm. But it shows us there is a God. Yeah, yeah. Keith, have you guys seen the movie Ten Cloverfield Lane? No. It's um, it's kind of a horror thriller type movie. Ooh. What happens in this movie? There's a there's a girl and she's on a, on a trip on the way somewhere. She begins getting radio messages that there are massive blackouts in the country and so something really bizarre is going on. Well, next thing she knows, she wakes up in an underground bunker. And apparently she's had a car accident. Someone has dragged her out of her car, saved her basically, but brought her into this bunker. And so she can't see the outside world. So all she knows is something weird was happening out there, and now I'm in here. And so um, she eventually makes it to a spot in this bunker where she can see out a window. But her only, her only like glimpse of the outside world is this small window and the guy who saved her is feeding her a narrative about what happened. And, but he's very sketchy, right? So you got this girl. She has no access to any, like, knowledge outside of the bunker except for what she's getting from this guy. And he's giving her some of what he's telling her is true, but it's not the whole truth. Mm. 
And so it's a really it's a really interesting movie in that what I mean what that girl needed was for somebody to drop her the real story through some little nook or cranny so that she could because she she literally didn't know what was going on in the outside world. For me, general revelation is almost like the guy. Like he he's given her glimpses of what's real, but you can't because of the situation she can't really trust him. She needs somebody outside the bunker to fill her in on what's really going on. And for me, special revelation or scripture is, is God is outside the bunker. All of humanity is inside the bunker. The universe is basically the bunker. And we can look at it, and we can see outside, and we can sort of get hints of what's going on. But at the end of the day, we don't have enough information. And the narrative is... and so. But in our world, mm-hmm. there's not just one guy in the bunker. There's hundreds of people in the bunker going, this is what's really going on out there. But God knew that we needed, we needed something outside. There's, he's transcendent from, which is a big word for just yeah. apart from our universe. Right. And so God has given us revelation so that we can look into it. And by the special revelation of the scripture, we can then make sense of everything that's going on in general revelation right. inside the bunker. Right. Yeah. And, and, and what's beautiful to me about the Bible is is what's hidden in our conversation right now is that narrative that the whole thing teaches, that you can even make a connection to a movie mm-hmm. and draw a parallel in that there is a greater story. This person doesn't know it, and they therefore don't know how to make decisions because they're blind spots in their knowledge. Yeah. But there's a story going on, and they're cut off from it. Well, we can even make that connection because the whole of what we call the Bible gives us a story to even draw that parallel yeah. where we could say people don't know yeah. something has happened and many people don't know what it is and they don't know how to make decisions because they don't know how to connect who they are to what's really right. going on. And it's, mm-hmm. it's crazy. You, you get inside the mind of this girl and you realize she is utterly helpless. She, there's no way for her to know if he's telling her the truth or not. Right. She has got to get outside the bunker to know, well, we can't get outside the universe. Right. But, what he's telling her is plausible. Like, it's it's believable. Right. It makes sense. Like, it, it is an answer that's pretty plausible, but there are bits and pieces of it that she knows deep down inside because of some signs that she's getting. This There's more to this story than he's telling me. And it's like our conscience telling us. I, mean, I can look up at the stars, and I can get yeah. what science tells me is the explanation for all this, mm-hmm. but, man, that, it just doesn't add up. Right. There's something in me that says, no, nah, there's something else. Mm. that I need to know. And I mean, that's why the scripture is so important. Yeah. And to, to further your analogy, you know, our, our human reason, our ability to, to look at the stars, our ability to do the scientific method, our ability to have a rational argument, all of that is still inside the bunker. Yeah. And, and so for us to judge who God is and, and how he has revealed himself using our knowledge, we're judging from inside the bunker, what's outside the bunker. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good. good. That's very good. Um, we have a we have a statement of faith in regard to God's word. It's long. We're not gonna. Um, I don't want to fully just exegete that whole thing. I will post it uh, so people can read along with it uh, and shoot us questions about it. But it brings up questions for me that I, I think are are worthy because we've alluded to we have we have a Bible, we have a book. What we say uh, is our we're making decisions off of that book. Well, why? Why should we make decisions off of that book? If I compare. Uh, you know, even people that not of the Abrahamic faith. So we got Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Those are those are the Abrahamic faith that have a a book, a text, a single text that that tells a narrative that that we each adhere to, mm-hmm. that create distinctions between us. There, there are some low level similarities, but by and large, a lot of distinctions. Well, we got other faiths around the world: Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, various things who have books, multiple books, and other prophets, people who speak, and they live by them. So what sets ours apart, and who cares? Is that a question? Absolutely. Justin looks like he's ready to roll. Well, no, I was actually looking at him and hoping he would answer. <laughs> he is our but, special uh, guest, so we're going to put him. No, um, I've been answering all the questions so far. So I'll, I'll take a stab <laughs> at it. Um, I think, first of all, it matters because there is a truth. So one of the books is true. They contradict each other, right? So somebody's book is right. Yeah. The world can't exist without there being an objective fact. 
Right. And right, I think otherwise this whole thing would just implode on itself. There has to be some universal facts holding things together. Yeah. And I think we see that in general revelation. There are ways that things work. Science, we call them laws, the law of gravity, right? That works here. It works anywhere around the world. Right. It's an objective, observable truth. But if, if what the Bible says is true about how God revealed himself to us and how he formed a people and how he revealed himself to that people and out of that, came, you know, he sent his son who redeemed us from the curse of sin and we find life and forgiveness in repenting and believing in that, well, that's completely different than, say, what the Jews believe because they don't believe that that has come in Christ. And the uh, Muslim faith would teach that that's not quite right about Jesus and there was greater revelation after Jesus. Well, those can't all be true. And then other faiths outside of the Abrahamic faiths teach all manner of different things. You know, Right. In Hinduism, there are some stories that don't connect. There are some obvious disconnects in some of their stories that they believe. Right. So we can't all be right. And so something has to be right. And I right. think that's a good place to start is realizing that somebody's got to be true. There's got to right. be a truth. Right. That's good. Well, this is theology in the dirt. Theology is the, a word, a, the study of God. So our book says some things about God. Um, it, it says some very specific things about God that kind of placed them in a category of of, of kind of really kind of having to be true or just absolutely not true. There's not much room for in between there. And so and so if this thing that we have comes from God, like we say so, then then, then what do we know about God that gives us some line of connection between what this book says? and who he is that we can begin to trust. Is there something there that we can see about the nature of God that reveals to us something about this Bible and its truthfulness? What do you think? Yeah, so one of the things that, that's uh, interesting, I can't, we may have talked about this before, but when we're talking about doctrine, we're talking about all sorts of ideas, ideas about, uh, and it, I think it's important to 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 sort of throw out there that every everybody who's listening to this podcast, anybody who could possibly be listening to this podcast, they they um, affirm a set of doctrines. They may not know what they are, but everybody has a worldview. Doctrines are sort of the, the, the nuts and bolts of your worldview. So it's not just Christians or just uh, you know Jewish people or, or um, Islamic folks that have doctrines. Now, every, every human being has a doctrine about how they believe the world works. What we believe, one of the things that's sort of unique about, about um, maybe even evangelical Orthodox Christians is that we really anchor all of our doctrines. It, they really hang from our doctrine of revelation, our, our revelation or the doctrine of the word, because we understand who God is, not by what we see around us, but because of the word. We understand who we are, not because we understand the world, but or we studied sociology or psychology or we understand it because we understand the word. So, like everything that we believe, almost or pretty much everything we believe about the world and about one another and God, it hinges on whether or not the word of God has authority, whether it's true, uh, and whether it's applicable in the same way today that it was two thousand years ago. Hmm. So, uh, it's sort of a foundational doctrine when yeah. it comes to Christianity. It all it all kind of begins and ends there because yeah. everything we're saying, we believe, even at this table, the unseen reality is we are connecting that to something that has told us that, right? As a young Christian, I was fascinated. I've always been fascinated by communication. Um, and, and as I read through my Bible for the first time, the, the Psalms talk about the heavens declare the, the glory of God. And to this day, I'm absolutely fascinated by the fact that God in his nature, if there is a God, he's communicating. Mm. And, and you guys have heard me say this before. Nothing is ever not communicating. Communication is constant. The question is, what form is that communication in and where is it coming from? Even in our, we have dreams. So even when we're dreaming and trying to sleep at night, we are receiving information from some source into the input of our souls. Nothing's never teaching. Nothing's never communicating. The question is the source. And, and, and so for me, I, I think built into the nature of revelation is the fact that God seems to be a God who has something to say, and he's communicating. 
So he speaks. And for me, it, it begins there. Now then the question becomes, well, what has he spoken and how do we know he said it? Mm-hmm. Right? Because again, communication is reality outside of Christianity, mm-hmm. which is why well, we've got 168 hours in a week. This is one of the reasons I'm passionate about us doing this. People who we're responsible for, people we're not responsible for, have 168 hours in their week, and they're bombarded with information constantly at all times, at every moment, and every day, even in their sleep. But what is the source and what is it telling them? And airwaves are full. And so maybe, just maybe, something we say in those airwaves can line up with the God who's a communicator and, and somehow supernaturally reach in and do good. So, so something's being communicated. It's coming from somewhere, and it says something. So what is that, and who is that, and what do we do with it? So talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> Coffee talk. Yeah, I, I get too excited about this. I could come, I've got way more to say than anybody's interested in hearing probably. <laughs> um, but um, one of the things that I think is very unique about at least evangelical conservative Christianity is that we, we're crazy enough to say that the, that the Bible actually lays out a right way and a wrong way to understand language. Mm. And we, we're bold enough to say that the Bible has the answer. Right. That's really offensive, especially in our world now. It's, it's sort of offensive because when I say that the Bible has the answer, that means that the other answers are not the answer. Right. It's exclusive. I'm saying that we are right. It's hard for me even, even to say that in our world because it, right. it makes me feel like I'm, I'm pompous or something. But the, at the nature of Christianity is to acknowledge that God has given us information. It's come in a way that we can understand what is true and what is not. And it even, uh, it even affirms that we're supposed to go out and tell everybody else yeah. that it's true and right. Yeah, Proverbs says... Then you will, after you understand wisdom, once you've studied this book, then you'll understand righteousness, justice, and equity. In other words, without this Bible, you can't understand righteousness and justice and equity. Whatever idea you've got about what's right and just and equitable, right. if it's not anchored here, probably, you can't really count on it. Yeah, that's mm. good. Mm. Something you said, Keith, you know, I think the echo of that in our in our culture is, well, that is what you think, and you're saying you are right, and so that's why that's that's comes across as pompous or arrogant. And when the reality is, it's not really what we think. This is what we believe God has said, and so therefore we respond to that not by, well, now I get to tell you, but this is what God said. I'm now His messenger mm. to speak this message, but this is not my message, and and I think all of us would. As we read the Bible, there are things that we read and we're like, well, if I was writing it, I would write something a little bit different because that's a little bit uncomfortable or that's a little bit you know, embarrassing or whatever. But these are God's words to us. This is, this is what he has chosen to reveal, and there's a lot that he hasn't chosen to reveal to us, yeah. and we need to be good with what he has chosen to reveal to us. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I agree with you. I, I love the fact that it's completely frank about its characters the people who are in the narrative, and um, and there's nothing hidden. There are places that you probably shouldn't read to your little child. You know, there, there's some censoring you have to do until they're of age. Even in Judaism, I, I, I think until bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, they pretty much keep Song of Solomon away from, from, from those guys and gals because it's kind of erotic, and you're like, oh, man. I don't I feel like I'm blushing now because I just said Song of Solomon in front of y'all. Right, so he said erotic. I did. I said erotic. Now, see, I am blushing. Mm -hmm. We still can't talk to you into preaching a series from that. No, I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) One one of y'all can do that if you want to. I have nothing. Fifty-two weeks. Fifty-two weeks on the hills of Beether and a mountain of myrrh. So, if y'all want to give that a whirl, you can. (laughs) And if you look at a topographical map of Israel, you're not going to find a hill of Beether and a mountain of myrrh. So you can just use your yeah, think about that one. Yeah, think about that one. So, but it's the word of God, right? It, it's there, and it and it's frank. It's honest. It speaks to all these things, and it doesn't cover up anything about its heroes. Pretty frank about them mm-hmm. that they fall way short, and and their message, however, was really not about them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scripture that that helps me. Second Peter one twenty and twenty one. This is a Christian standard Bible. 
Above all, you know this, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. So that speaks to coming to. So somebody, a prophet, is speaking, but it didn't come from their own will. It came to them from somewhere. And then he says, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So seemingly the witness of the text itself says that people are speaking, but they're speaking from God in the work of the Holy Spirit to other people. And that gives me some framework for understanding what's happening here mm-hmm. a little bit. God to man to other people. I think it's, it's interesting you see in Paul's writings and even the other letters of the New Testament, even the prophets are constantly pointing back saying, well, it's written, thus said the Lord and then making application to their situation in that day. Mm. But it's always referencing back to, hey, this is what God has said that we all acknowledge to be his word. So let's not forget that. Mm. And then you you see John start his gospel with the word became flesh. Even this reference back to the word from God is manifest in the person of Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then even Jesus' words after his resurrection in Luke 24 why are you foolish and so slow to believe all that was written about me? And and pointing that all back to mm. to him. And so that constant reference back to, hey, let's go back to the book. Let's go back to what's been revealed mm. to us. Yeah, that's I think huge. It's important for us and how we live our lives. So what about the, the obvious question out there that somebody's asking? Well, if that's God's word to us and we're supposed to just I mean, he just, it's, it's as plain and easy as that. Why in the world can't you guys agree on anything? Like why, if the Bible's been given, it's God's word to us, why are there all these denominations? Why can you know, why, why can't you agree on so many things? If it's clear, I mean, what's the problem? Pastor question. Emmett, go for it. Yeah, so I'm, gonna, I'm looking for a sentence There's in our confessional statement as a church. Uh, under Revelation, it says, we confess that both our finitude and our sinfulness preclude the possibility of knowing God's truth exhaustively, but we affirm that enlightened by the Spirit of God, we could know God's revealed truth truly. And that's a lot of big words to say that we're sinners, we're still broken, we still see dimly through a glass, as Paul would say, and so we don't see even God's Word, we don't completely understand it in the way that we would if we were if we were without sin if we had completely the mind of God and yet we can have confidence that in the the things that we do understand the things that it tells us that are clear um, we can trust those things and so uh, what you see is the big picture issues what we would as we talk about theological triage the the first order issues um, who the, the the revelation of Scripture the authority of Scripture the divinity of Christ the resurrection the virgin birth, the great commission, all those kinds of things, there is unanimity among Christians on those things. Um, and then as you get further out into second and third level issues and you talk about, well, what's the proper mode of baptism and what's the proper role of organizing a church and mm-hmm. um, what's the what's the correct view of revelation and end-time theology and all these kinds of questions, yeah, we have to admit we're not perfect and we don't know everything with perfect detail, um, we're sinners and we interpret things the best that we can through the through the Holy Spirit and through reading the scriptures. But there will be a day that we'll know all this completely. Right. That's good. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and continue our discussion about revelation, about scripture. Okay, we're back. And uh, to Emmett, Emmett, to follow up on something you just said, I, I, and, and Keith, your question I think is 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 important. Uh, um, the end result, um, looking at the very end, we have a Bible. And it got to us somehow, some way, and it claims to be speaking on behalf of God through people and events to others. I think one of, the, one of our challenges is when we read that because of our, finite, our finitude, is that a word? Finitude. finitude. Finitude, there it is. Our finitude, our understanding of who God is affects our conclusions. And, and I think, unfortunately, 
we got their camps. We would call ourselves evangelicals. We would call ourselves theological conservatives and what we mean by conserving what the Bible teaches about the nature of God because we the Bible tells us what we should believe. So we're conservative in that, in that sense. It teaches some things about God. And, and what we believe about God and what he said in his word is going to flush out differently, right? And so if, if I believe that God is a God among other gods, then my application of that isn't going to be a little different. If we say uh, he is a God, not the God, then I'm like, oh, okay. There's no really need for me to convince anybody that this thing matters. Ah, that's good. You're good. Do your or, thing, man. As you come to Revelation, if you say the Bible contains truth but not is, is truth, mm. then, well, it's, it's a good source to read, but so is, you know, Farmer's Almanac, and so is a whole bunch of other right. things that contain truth. Then, then, then. What's the determiner of what I'm going to consider truth? What, you can, what if we don't consider that to be truth? No, that's not in my framework of truth. It, that's not a truth in the text for me. That's a problem, right? Hmm. That's a massive problem. Yeah, one of the things that's been helpful for me over the last several years is um, I used to just have almost a hostility toward what the church used to believe, like the fathers, the patristic fathers. Like I didn't want to hear what the... Those guys are men. I'm not interested in what they... I mean, the, the Scripture's plain enough. Right. But I do think the way the Holy Spirit has shaped uh, truth over time, from you know all the way back to when we began getting the Old Testament to when we began sort of putting the New Testament together in the first century, I believe that God, and I think the Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit has sort of shepherded the process so that there are th- there are some solid there's some solid ground that we can sort of hang on to and rest our hearts in when we look back and go well the church has believed this for a long 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 time so if i'm looking at this and someone that i seem to have have trust recently has come up with this new idea and there hasn't no one's really believed that for all of church history that's a red flag so it's we look at the scriptures, we pray that the Holy Spirit would, would give us insight, we read it, but we also look back and what has been the historic theology is what it's called, but what has the church believed over all these centuries about things like marriage, about things like the church and what the church is supposed to look like and baptism and that kind of thing. There's lots of really, really cool sort of boundaries and guidelines that we can use as we look back at church history to help us... Uh, work through some of these differences because it, it really, it isn't just me and the Holy Spirit. Right. There's more to it than that. The Bible teaches us there's more to it than that for me to know and, and really interpret the scriptures properly. Hmm. That's important. That's good. Yeah. That's important. John frame helps me. Uh, he's done a lot of, uh, a lot of detailed work. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of puts together this progression in his, in his little tiny work called systematic theology in answer to the question, how God speaks to us, he talks about events, words, and persons. So there are events that happen, and events are brought about by God's controlling power because he's all-powerful. So these events speak something about God and about us because he's running them. So it's not like the world is running out of control, right? So events and then words. Words bear God's meaningful authority, so God's a communicator, uh, and all of creation is communicating something because it was made by a communicating God. And those words he breaks down into divine voice, the word through prophets and apostles, and then the written word. So he takes the word through a progression of how we get what we call the Bible. So God's working in events, creation, right? even the fall, what we call as Christians, like sin entering all of created order. Uh, words, so God speaks. He speaks through people, and then they write that down, and we get a written copy. And then finally, persons, they embody the presence of the Lord. So God uses people to speak this word that's coming from his work in history to other people. And, and that helps me see a progression that we're not just making stuff up on the fly, but what our Bible teaches us is God's at work in events, words, and persons. Mm-hmm. And there's something authoritative there for us to know. And therefore, it's a good judge for not only us as Christians looking at our Bible, but any other document someone says is authoritative. What in history shows me that that's authoritative, mm-hmm. right? And these things are important for us as Christians when we talk about Scripture and authoritative sources. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm going to ask a question that if I was listening, I would be asking. 
So how do we come to the conclusion that the Bible, what we call the Bible, Christian Bible, is the true document? Whereas if I'm a Muslim, I'm like, it's the Quran. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So prove, you know, why is that the source and not the Quran? Right. Why do you add to the Torah if I'm a Jew? Yeah. You know? What's up with Matthew to Revelation, buddy? You know? Yeah. Well, these things that people wrote later add to. So why, why is that true? Good question. I'm going to give you first stab at that as our guest. Why, see, that's why you have guests. You let them have the first stab, right? Wow. It's a danger to be a guest. <laughs> we're all, we not only do our theology, we're wrestling around with hard questions, but we're doing apologetics too, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So what do we do with that? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I'm sitting here stalling, thinking through maybe a better answer. I'm a better <laughs> um, question asker right. than I am an answerer. Yeah. You know, we have, when we get to Jesus, because C.S. Lewis is absolutely right. The thing that keeps Christianity apart from everything else is Jesus, the person of Christ, and what he said and did. And, you know, the yeah. old argument, right, it, that Lewis made, not everybody might, they might not know that argument, but he's either Lord, liar, or he's crazy. So the stuff he said and did, he's got, he's a nutcase. Or he is the ultimate con man. The ultimate con man. Or he's God, right? And so you don't have much option with Jesus. And so when you come to Jesus, Jesus spoke of the Old Testament scriptures being settled. It's not like that's unsettled for them. Yeah. So in Judaism, it would be awesome if we could get one of the rabbis from Rodef Shalom here in town, idea, idea, to come talk to us about some history. I know some, I know some people. I mean, but anyway, that would be a good discussion. Tell us about some Old Testament history outside the Christian tradition. How did you get you know, Genesis mm-hmm. to Malachi, but it was already in place. Jesus spoke about the law, the prophets, and the writings. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus being God, we're just going to trust that if what he said about himself is true, he's God and he knows. So there's an authority to Genesis to Malachi that we would say is unquestioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think ultimately the evidence is the resurrection. Um, and then all those things that Jesus said about himself that point back to himself and all the things that that you see fulfilled in Christ, you know, Corinthians tells us that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus, mm-hmm. and we see all of those fulfilled in Him. And so, there's certainly there's an apologetic approach that you can say, well, you know, there are thousands of prophecies that the odds of that happening and being fulfilled are like I don't know, one in a billion or or something. Um, you can take that that kind of approach. Um, ultimately, probably. You can't you, you you can't prove the existence of faith. Faith is something that you have to you have to take on faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have good evidence, um, and I, I think you know, so. You can look at the historical record of Jesus. You can look at, at the prophecies. You can look at things like we've already talked about general revelation, um, and then you can you can see it. Yeah. You can you can feel it. Right. That's good. Yeah. Well, we have guys like Emmett and Jim come <laughs> on here so they can give good simple answers. Yeah, uh, to things that would take me an hour to explain. So. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. One of the things that that we hear like a lot of nowadays is that's been corrupted. That's what a lot of like Islam would say that our Bible's been corrupted. Mm. That it, it sure you've got the word, but you don't have the original word. And one of the things that's super cool that we do know because of science is that we have the Bible has over five thousand manuscripts, original, not original, not the original letter. Paul wrote, but there are over 5,000 pieces, uh, manuscripts from the Old Testament and the New Testament that we have in our possessions. Like, so we, we have enough to reproduce the entire originals of the New Testament. So um, if you were to try to compare that to any other ancient document, there's nothing that even comes close. Right. And those so, are full manuscripts, not counting the the portions. Well, some of them are the full. 20, some of yeah, right. some of them are full. Some of them are just a few verses. Some right. of them date back right to one twenty A.D. So this is fifty years after um, after Jesus uh, was was um, resurrected. We all. One of the things that's fascinating to me is that two three hundred years even before Jesus shows up, the entire Old Testament that we have right now, exact same Old Testament, the entire Old Testament has been translated into Greek mm-hmm. yep. for, for Greek-speaking people. Yep. Like that, that's the old, that was done a long time ago. Yeah. And so, and, and then, and so when, when our New Testament comes across in Hebrew, 
it like we can compare that to what the Greek versions said, which gives us more confidence in that we actually got it. And then, like in the in the at the turn of the century, there was a lot of people were conf- they were they were making claims that the Old Testament was faulty, completely not what was originally written until this sheep herder in the forties stumbles across the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we find like ancient versions of Isaiah. You get a thousand years closer to the original yeah. text and 99% accuracy. That's exactly like the Old Testament, yeah. the Isaiah we have in our Old, Old Testament. Right. So over and over again, God has proven to us and helped us see that, like just from the text itself. Now you can argue a bunch of things after that, but the text that we have is is the, it's essentially the original text. Yeah. There's not much question that what we have is what was originally written. Right. And there's very little. Where there are discrepancies, it's minor stuff. Right. There's a couple of things that you, someone might consider significant. Yeah. But as far as the historic things that we believe about Christ and right. yeah. compl- even even the, the most secular scholars yeah. would say, no, I mean, you've got the original. Absolutely. Right there. There's a, there's a Peter, Peter says, um, Second uh, Peter chapter 3, he says, therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. Now, this is fascinating to me. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their destruction as they do the other mm-hmm. scriptures. Mm-hmm. Now, that word, just get all nerdy, is the same word used in 2 Timothy 3.16 where Paul's speaking about the Old Testament and calls them scriptures. Mm-hmm. Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. That's true or not. He, that's dangerous. If I'm writing that, I'm going, they distort like they do other things they read from other people. Mm-hmm. But he said the other scriptures, mm-hmm. putting Paul's word on par with what Jesus said was already scripture. Now that... that that's, that's one of those C.S. Lewis things. This has got to be true or it's all bunk, right? And completely bogus. And that, that's not a lot of margin for error there, right? Mm-hmm. And so how, how do we know? Well, it's, it says of itself that's what it is. Now, if it proves out at the end of time that it was a whole a bunch of hooey, well, okay. Well, Paul would even say that, right? If Jesus isn't resurrected, then our faith is useless and we're yeah. the most pitiable people in the whole world. Right. But if not, if... He really did rise. Yeah. That's a different... Yeah. Then these these records then real. are real mm-hmm. and worthy of our consideration. And that's a big deal. Yeah. That's a big deal. Um, wh- what about, uh, as we, we kind of... There's, there's tons. There's tons. And again, we're scratching the surface. And for people who are going to listen to this, we want to, number one, invite you into a discovery. Read your Bible. Um, I would say as a, as a young guy before I became a Christian, I read the Bible and... Some things I was convinced by, some things I wasn't convinced by. And, and just as a personal testimony, only when the Lord saved me and changed me through the good news of Jesus Christ, his kingdom, his salvation, his cross, his burial, his death, his burial, his resurrection, ascension, could I see clearly what I was viewing just empirically? Um, so I say read the Bible. Ask hard questions. God's bigger than hard questions. And uh, investigate it. Uh, send us questions. Ask somebody you're close to. Um, but, but a question for those in the faith, um, and if they, if they read our statement of faith, they're going to read this word inerrant. Um, I always feel funky about the doctrine of inerrancy for multiple reasons, um, and I'm going to throw this on the table for discussion. One is it's not historic to the apostolic fathers and the patristic tradition, inerrancy. Inerrancy comes along as a response to the enlightenment, a reason, empiricism applied to supernatural things, which doesn't even line up. Like you you can't do empirical and supernatural. Those things miss one another. Um, And and the confusion on textual variations with inerrancy. And so inerrancy, although I would say every one of us at this table, I don't want to poll you, but I think we all believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, that, that the scriptures never affirm anything contrary to fact. If it says it, it's a fact, right? So we would all affirm that. So I think it's important to recognize what it is versus what it is not. Mm-hmm. Um, because if somebody reads that, you go, inerrant. Well, you read at the end of John 7, John 8, you got a little note here. 
and it says earlier manuscripts don't have this part of the Bible. See, right? It's not. But in I here. think that's the good piece of honesty about this, right? I think that gives us, to me, it gives me more confidence, not less confidence. You know, when you use, you're talking about the Enlightenment, basically to go back to Keith's analogy, that's that's people inside the bunker trying to apply outside the bunker uh, a, an authority to judge all of that, saying right. we have enough knowledge inside the bunker to judge the intent and the meaning and the purpose behind outside the bunker. Yeah. And so it's just, it, it can't happen. And so right. the response to that is this doctrine of inerrancy, right? That, that what God has revealed to us is exactly what he intended to real reveal to us. And that all of it is without error um, in the, in the original manuscripts. Now that's the important part. And we have most of those original manuscripts. And as, as you said, there are some, there's some slight textual variants. Um, none of those are doctrinally significant. Right. There are some, some pieces in the new Testament particularly, uh, you know, ironically, it's one of them is the end of Mark where some people maybe in, our, in Kentucky and other places decide that, you know, that is one of the most important things or, that, hey, or Aragon, Aragon, Georgia, <laughs> if you pick up a snake and it bites you, Cedar Town, then that's a, you know, right. That's a true sign of salvation and right. Someone who's been saved and, and that doesn't ma- match with the rest of what we see in the New Testament or the end of John 7 and the beginning of John 8 where you have you know, the woman caught in adultery. Well, yeah, that's exactly like what we see in Jesus' character everywhere else. But if that mm-hmm. was not in the original manuscript, it doesn't affect our faith. Yeah. It doesn't affect any tenet of our faith. Right. And, and textual variance is not inerrancy. Inerrancy right. is, the, there is there is nothing in the Scriptures that affirm anything contrary to fact. And so inerrancy really comes along as a as a post-enlightenment doctrine to help us wrestle through the growth of Christian archaeology and empirical data where we begin to get closer to the original documents and see, oh my, because, okay, for for the nerds out there, the closer we get to originals, it's considered to be more accurate mm-hmm. unless there are a lot of copies. Mm-hmm. Well, we know there are a lot of copies. But the closer we get, the more affirmation we have that, oh my gosh, this, this had to have happened because there's no reason to copy this this many times if there's not a historical thing to copy down. And heck, even Luke, Luke even says this to his to Theophilus as he's writing to him, Luke and Acts. Like, I, I, I researched this heavy boy. Mm-hmm. And so I'm writing it down based on the historical record. So Luke's looking at record that we don't even have, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's bound to be some manner of spelling or dropping of letters or, or, or this, this account redacted. Because he's looking, and he's looking for sources, and that that is not inerrancy. That is textual critical study, mm-hmm. and and it's vital. But but those things don't speak to what is there being wrong. Mm-hmm. Right, if that distinction makes sense. Well, and the reason we know that's not that that's not in the original manuscripts is because we have thousands of manuscripts, and you, it becomes clear like the more manuscripts you get the clearer it becomes what is was the original text. So as time goes on, it's it's less and less. I mean, by now, it's virtually impossible that we're going to find something that's brand new because we have so many, and there are so many now. Even, I mean, these guys, these textual critics are pouring over pieces that we that haven't, we don't even know they're there yet, right? They're there for somebody to get through. So um, it should bring somebody lots of confidence to know when they see a note in their Bible, this wasn't in the original man. This wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. He's just basically telling you it's not. It shouldn't be there. And one of the things that you know you you mentioned inerrancy and how it's sort of a thing that's kind of emerged with enlightenment. But the thing is, I believe God in God's wisdom, He gives us what we need when we need it. Right. It's, revelation is progressive. We yeah. know more about the world than David did. Right. Who knew more about the world than Moses did. We know more about the world than some of those guys did. Well, for most of human history, people were illiterate. I mean, you told me, and I just had to believe it. Right. It's not like I had all these questions. I wouldn't. People weren't walking around going, I wonder if there's a God. No, everybody for all of human history was like, no, there's a God. Now, what you called him might be different. But when the Enlightenment came, literacy shows up. People start reading the Bible in their own language. They start having concerns. So you have to start understanding, well, God says, okay, I need to give you guys answers. 
guy stumbles across a cave in 1947, I think, and finds all these documents that goes exactly like you have. And so the Lord gives us this information as we need it, and now is the time. So why is doctrine important now? Why is it important to read our Bibles? Because as for all of human history, it's right now that we've got all this criticism, textual criticism that's coming against the Bible at the time when everybody's able to read it. Like it, it all happens at the same time for a reason. So if somebody's like, yeah, but that's not for me. Well, it will be. Like it, it's like you and I have a friend that just had a life or death experience in the water. If we had gone to him a month ago and said, man, let's, let's talk about hypothermia. Let's talk about what happens if you, you know, spill over in a really cold. He'd be like, dude, I mean, we're talking about the ocean or a lake. No, we're talking about a lake. He'd right. be like, oh, I don't need it. Right. The problem is he did need it. And so the, the thing that, that concerns me about doctrine and our people and people that we know is they hear this and they go, I don't need that. Yeah, you do. Even if you don't know you need it yet, right. you're going to need it yeah. because all these voices are coming. And if it's not you, it's your child or your grandchild that are going to need to have answers to these questions. Yeah. And so the, the great news is there are answers out there. Yep. They are there. All this textual stuff, you know, is it the really the but? There are answers and yep. they're, they're compelling answers. Yep. You got to dig in. That's right. But nobody said it was going to be easy. That's right. No, that's good. That's that's good. Um, go ahead, Justin. I was going to say, I think it's important to note, too, though, like we've pointed out the, the end of Mark and uh, John 7, 8, like they're not in the earliest manuscripts, but those stories are in some manuscripts. Yeah. And they don't contradict anything that is true Yeah, in, in the consistency of Scripture. Yeah. That so looks, just because smells just like Jesus. So there's a note that says this is not in the earliest manuscript. doesn't mean it didn't happen. It right. doesn't mean it's not important. True. And it's consistent with the life of Jesus as we see yeah, everywhere else. So I think that's an important just that's good thing to note. And and I think one of the things, uh, the enlightenment, I love your illustration, Emmett, of it created this box of of what they said we can we can only test these things. Well, that's assuming that there's nothing outside that box. Mm-hmm. That's a big assumption that they can't even know and admit that in that worldview they don't even know. And so when you start factoring in the unknown, then you've got to jump into the narrative. This is where I was going with that, is there's a narrative. God is a narrative God. He speaks, and he's created a narrative. We call it the, the gospel, the good news of who God is, his reign, his salvation. And, 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 and God can take story that's illustrative, that is true. And we, don't, and we, have, these, we have this in the Bible. We have the apocalyptic genre. Apocalypse is not empirical fact. They're not historical narratives. They're pictures. They're stories of pictures that communicate a truth, which sometimes trip us up, which is why we don't preach from Daniel or Revelation a lot, right? We like, oh, I don't know what to do with the big gold statue, or I don't know what to do with these doors or Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel. Like, why'd you go in the south and come out the north? And what's this water running out of the temple? And is that real? And what about this thing coming down out of heaven? And we're going, what am I supposed to do with that? God speaks in story. So if the Lord inspired an account of what Jesus possibly could have done and it made it into the text, doesn't make it less true. Because this is the nature and character of God. And so that, of course, that, that puts down onto the table the various narr- uh, genres of Scripture. Like, not all Scripture is historical narrative. Some of it's apocalyptic. Some of it's wisdom. Some of it's worship songs. It's music. It's all manner of things, and that dictates how we read it, too. And that, that gets into probably another podcast about how to interpret yeah. Scripture. Well, and then you get into, you know, this, what, what Justin said. Uh, does, it, does it line up with, with the rest of Scripture? Does it line up with the character and nature of God? And so that's when you come to some of the apocryphal books, and you look at the Gospel of Thomas or, you know, other books that didn't make it into the canon. You read those, and you say, clearly this does not line up with what we see revealed in the rest of Scripture. Some strange stuff in there. Some strange stuff. And some people wrote this. Thomas didn't write that, by the way. Somebody that took his name to try to have some authority wrote that much later and said, here's what I want the message I want to put out. That's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. And scholars will tell you that those documents written in the second century are clearly clear to define. They're easy to define second century because they contain teaching that didn't come along until the second century. Anachronism. (laughs) Whoa. Big word. Big wow. word. Yeah. Holy stuff that shows up after the fact. So. Anachrophobia. Yeah. So we, and we see this kind of stuff. We see this kind of stuff in our movies, right? You see a, a movie that's a historical movie, 
and the one of the characters or an extra or whatever forgets to take their watch off. You're like, hey, they're wearing an Apple watch, and this is a movie from 150 years ago. <laughs> right. It don't fit. Dude, I was watching, totally watching, a, we were re-watching Seinfeld, which is awesome. If you haven't watched Seinfeld at all, you need to go watch it, and if you have watched it, want to rewatch it, it's still funny, but there was an episode in this span of 30 seconds where they had glasses sitting on Jerry's counter. And in 30 seconds, the location of those glasses shifted, had stuff in them. And I, I couldn't watch the rest of the episode. I was going, oh, this is terrible. How did you miss, did that? You miss that? Yeah, but that's the perfect example. It's like, this 30 seconds, how many times did y'all film that? And why couldn't dude over there remember what's in the glass? Mm. But that's right. Do you, that's good. That's helpful. Um, okay, as we, we start to wrap, wrap, uh, wrap up our time, uh, sort of rapid fire Final thoughts. Um, Keith, we'll start with you, and we'll let you go last, and then I'll close this down. So Keith, Justin, myself, and then and then Emmett. So what are some of your final thoughts? Overwhelmingly, my my takeaway message is read the Bible. Start to finish, read it. Get on a reading plan. Read it Genesis to Revelation. You know, if you can't do it in a year, do it in two years. But over the next five years, get through the Bible three or four times because you really can't understand the individual books, if you don't understand and see the whole story. I'm amazed at how, how many folks will read the Bible for the first time, and they, there are crazy stuff in the Bible. You, there are things that you read if you've never read through the whole thing that people don't preach on, right? So you read through it, and you think, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Well, the good news is the more you read it, the more it all fits together, and the more points it touches itself from Old Testament to New Testament prophecy to you know genesis and leviticus and just mine it man just dig in there and just do it that's good go justin i think for me don't be afraid to dig into questions that come up we often approach uh the bible or even the, the sharing of the gospel um alongside other faiths with this nervousness of like i, I can't i can't consider is the bible true because then I might lose my faith. Right. I can't hear what the Muslim believes because it might make me question my own belief. But we can't be afraid to let the Bible stand for itself, to let the gospel shine amongst alternative narratives. Um, and so, yeah, don't be afraid to dig into hard questions. The answers are there. It's good. Um, we don't have to be afraid of them. Yeah. Two things, two resources I would encourage people. Read your Bible. Um, should go, yeah, that, read your Bible. It, it can handle our scrutiny. Right. Um, I would say two, two books I would encourage people to go read. 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible by um, Robert Plummer. It's a great reference book. It's not one you read cover to cover. You're like, oh, I have this question. And you go look at the question and fantastic scholar. It's a well done little book. And then I would say a book that really wrecked my understanding of um, how passionate people were about preserving the scriptures. And, and then you got to ask the question, why? Why is this such a big deal? Is uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Not a Christian book. Fascinating study uh, on how uh, Irish monks, and among other things, preserve Western civilization through their copying of the Bible when the Vikings uh, came. Why are they so passionate about that? I mean, shouldn't you just be worried about your gold and your silver and your family? And here are these guys making sure, making sure that this, above all things, survived. Why? Why? What's more precious than money in life? And that leaves me with a question I can't answer other than there is a God worth bowing down to, even if I lose everything. Mm. And I would say those two, those would be good resources to go go take a look at. All right, Emmett, you have the last word. Yeah, I'm going to do kind of a mashup of y'all's answer and maybe go a little bit further with that. I would say read the Bible, but I would also say read it in big chunks. Um, most of the New Testament epistles you can read in 20 minutes or less, and it will help you understand. Uh, you can read most of the Gospels in an hour, hour and a half. Um, take them 30 minutes at a time, read them in chunks, and you'll you'll get a much bigger flow and understanding of what's going on there. Mm -hmm. um, and then as you have questions, yeah, ask those questions. There's there's I I firmly believe that we grow most in our faith when we when we encounter things that are difficult and we have to ask questions and we have to wrestle with a text. We have to wrestle with a question of well, why does God say this when everything within me says this? Mm -hmm. Um, or the culture says something opposite than what I see in the text. Mm. Um, and then as you wrestle with those things, do that in community with other believers. Uh, that's a, a really essential thing, not to just be left out on your own. Uh, the Holy Spirit teaches and guides each of us that are, 
that are in the faith, but to do that in community with other people too, who can encourage you and can, uh, can help wrestle with you through some of those issues. Solid. I love it. Hey guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I love doing this. I love talking theology and love talking our application to it in our homes, our cities, and our worlds. Guys, we thank you for listening. It's been an absolute blast. We really appreciate it. Need you couple do a couple things. Number one, go listen to the podcast. Number two, share it. Then we'd love for you to leave us a five-star rating, and that would be absolutely fantastic. If you have questions, you can send them to us at theologyinthedirt at gmail.com. We appreciate it. You guys have a great day. Out.